Graham, if you don't know me, welcome if you're visiting, uh, checking us out. Um, that's quite a passage, isn't it, really? We're going to have a good look at that today and uh, ask God in a moment to help us understand um, what it means for us in the 21st century. And uh, good to see the, um, the Eurovision people here this morning. If that's full commitment, I know you've had a big night. Um, and of course, Ukraine won. Where's Bex on here? She was, uh, Brooke, you, uh, oh no, really? It's not, not public knowledge? Oh, well, you know, if you're going to watch Eurovision, surely you'd get up and watch it, otherwise it's too bad, bad luck. You know, really. Um, no? All right, I've spoiled it for Michelle, I'm sorry. Um, but if I was a betting man and I'm not, I would have put my money on Ukraine. Anyway, I'm just sort of um, killing time, but we've really got on to get into this passage, don't we? So have your outline in front of you, that'd be great. If you've got a Bible, um, have your Bible open to Joshua 6. There's an outline in the bulletin, uh, grab that. Uh, that'll be really helpful, I think. Have your Bible open. Um, if you don't have a Bible, just jump up and grab one in the, in the foyer. That's no problem at all. You can do that. Or maybe on your phone, your iPad. Um, maybe you brought your computer in. Who knows? All right. Uh, if, if, I'm hoping, too, that you're following along with the reading plan. So the reading plan for this week was to read jo- uh, Joshua 5 and 6. Uh, next week, 7 and 8. That'll really help as we look at these passages. And so, because we don't cover every verse, every little thing. Uh, so if you can read along, that would be really good. So this week, uh, Joshua f- uh, 7 and 8, and then um, I think that you'll find that helpful. All right. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you too before we um, get going is um, St. David's Burrowing. We're meeting this afternoon, 4.30. Uh, love to see you there. We're looking at 2 Corinthians 5. It's a wonderful gospel passage um, of, uh, of great challenge and encouragement. So um, come and join us, uh, 4.30 at St. David's. We've got to see you there. How about I pray? Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, uh, training and correcting in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Father, we pray today that as we hear your word that's God-breathed to us today, we pray that you'd help us to to listen to it, uh, to concentrate, help me to be clear, and we pray um, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's an, uh, there's an old spiritual that goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it. I don't have a guitar in my hand. I can't sing without my guitar. I just can't do it. Uh, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. You might know that one. The walls came... Yes, well, actually, sort of. Not quite right. The walls did come down. They collapsed upon themselves, we're told. And everyone charged straight in and they took the city. That's verse 20. But really, it wasn't much of a battle, was it? Uh, there, there, wa- there wasn't really a battle. It was, the, it was the battle that wasn't. God gave Jericho into Israel's hands and it was the gracious gift of the sovereign Lord. His promises realised. We pick up the story today with Joshua lying prostrate on the ground, on holy ground, before him is the commander of the Lord's army, uh, a manifestation of God, of the Lord. So it's in 5, 13 to 15. It's the last little section of chapter 5. And there's Joshua, prostrate on the ground, on holy ground, and in front of him is God, the manifestation of the Lord. It's got to take us back, if you know your Bible just a little bit, maybe a famous story of when Moses spoke to, uh, God spoke to Moses. Uh, through the, the, the burning bush. Again, a, a manifestation of the Lord. 
Well, here you see Joshua had gone out on a reconnaissance mission to check out Jericho and he found himself face to face with his commander. He headed out thinking military strategy and instead he found out that God's plan for him was to take off his sandals and worship. But as we'll see, it wasn't as if Joshua was to do nothing. It wasn't a case of let go and let God. Obedience in action in response to God's promise was and always will be the experience of God's people. We never let go and let God. Obedience in action is the response. And that's what we see. So this would be the Lord's victory. And the way in which the victory would come about would be ingrained in their memory. A bit like the skit we saw today. That'll, we'll never forget that. Um, this, was, uh, this was the gift of God. He, their gracious, sovereign commander. And thinking ahead too, this would be the pattern of all future advances into the land of promise and the land of rest. So later, right at the end of the book in chapter 21, we read that the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to their ancestors. The Lord gave them rest on every side. Well, Joshua 6 verse 1 sets the scene. So if you've got your Bibles open there, you can see it with me. Uh, Jericho is, on, is at DEFCON 1. I found out what that actually means, apart from Hollywood movies. It means defence readiness condition. So that's what Jericho were at, right? Uh, on, on all systems, high alert they were. See verse 1? Because of the Israelites, we're told. They battened down the hatches. Uh, recent offense, uh, events, multitudes crossing the Jordan in flood and now camping outside the city, really gave them no confidence that conflict is avoidable. Jericho is under siege and the only way to break the stalemate will be by an Israelite attack. But in reality, well, this is an under-equipped and inexperienced army. Overcoming this garrison city, uh, like it was a fort, a military city, Jericho, you see, is in every way just an, as, in, as impossible a task as crossing the Jordan in flood. But God. But God. So God initiates. And this is our uh, first little point in our outline there. Verses 2 to 5 are the details of the Lord's instructions to Joshua, which are then given to the priests, we see in verse 6, and then to the people in verse 7. It's a common uh, practice we see. Uh, the tactics are revealed and the agenda is set. This is actually the, the, the Lord's answer to Joshua's question back in 5 verse 14 what message does my Lord have for his servant well here's the answer in the first few verses of chapter uh, 6 so these verses are the divine uh, commander's strategies and notice too in verse 2 the C uh, S-E-E see I have delivered Jericho into your hands in other words God is saying look focus here see focus here uh, it's a little bit like look at me look at me um, that type of thing going on look at focus there's not a shred of doubt about the outcome although it's yet to happen notice the grammatical tense of a completed action I have given it's a it's a, a completed action in fact the Lord's words in verse 2 
take us all the way back to chapter 1. You might remember chapter 1 at the start of the series, verse 3. I'll read it to you again. I will give you every place where you set your foot. You see, not a shred of doubt with God. It's going to happen. No, no doubt about the outcome. So, the instructions are given, but the emphasis is not on the fighting men. What's the emphasis on? Well, it's on the ark. As the guys walked around the, uh, the walls, I'm glad they were carrying the ark because that's the emphasis. Now, remember, what does the ark symbolize? It, it, it did carry the Ten Commandments. It carried the law. So it was a significant piece of furniture. But it's what it symbolizes far more important. It symbolizes God's presence with his people. So they're right there in the middle of the army, right there in the middle of them all, there is God to accomplish victory for them. He's not at arm's length. He's not distant. That's not the God we read about in the Bible. Just as he did through Exodus, just as he did through the wilderness, God is with them. He leads them by his presence. And just so as God's people and us don't miss the point, um, you might have noticed there's an emphasis on the number seven. Did you catch that? In the Bible, seven is, is, is the, this, the number of divine completeness or perfection. You could say it's God's number. Well, that, the Bible doesn't actually say that. But it's a number of divine completeness and, and perfection. The seventh day takes us right back to, to, uh, to Genesis. On the seventh day, God rested and all was good. Everything was good. And so here, seven laps. After, on the seventh lap, the walls collapse. Uh, there are seven priests, there are seven trumpets, and the list goes on. What's the point? This is God's work. That's the point. This is God's work. You can't miss it. God's initiative. Although, you've got to wonder though, don't you? Uh, you've got to wonder how the priests and the military leaders and even the people first reacted when they heard about this idea. I know, let's take the city by doing laps around it and shouting at the end. Um, it doesn't sound like a great military strategy. Perhaps that's the point. It relies on God completely. Um, and of course, the, the people had just, had just seen the waters of the Jordan parted. And they had crossed the Jordan when it was in flood. Remember, there's a long, long walk across. So they, the commands they were given, well, they were met with faith and obedience. They trusted in God's promises. And Hebrews 11 verse 30 tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them seven days. It's by faith they did it. They trusted in God. They trusted in his promises. Now, turning to verses 8, well, really 8 to 21, the verses, verses 8 to 14 uh, is the, the detailed execution of the commands in preparation for the fall of the city. So you can read them in a bit more detail there. Which is, um, and the fall of the city is described in verses 15 to 21. With the exception of Rahab and her family, and remember that was that she, her family, the house where they were staying, that was marked out by a scarlet cord hanging from the window uh, and, and her faith and her family and her family's faith too in God's promises. With the exception of that, verse 17, uh, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. You see, when God's wrath falls, it is only by faith or trusting in the gift of his grace that sinners can be rescued. And Rahab's an example of that. Israel learned that lesson 
way back to the Passover in Exodus as the angel of death passed over those houses that had the blood uh, on the top of the, the door, uh, door frames. They trusted the Lord and the same is here. Rahab trusted the Lord and his promises. Rahab's faith expressed in her works is the means by which she is justified, made right with God and rescued from God's judgment of Jericho. So James writes this. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. But friends, I think at the moment we need to, I guess it's pausing, but it's taking a bit of a different direction. And um, I suppose a bit of an elephant in the room, maybe. I don't know. Um, well, what, I, what I'm calling battles and bloodshed. We've got to deal with this issue. Um, it's a difficult issue and it comes to light, especially in verse 21. You notice verse 21, uh, Carol read it so well before. For many, verse 21, and that theme that we come across a few times in the Old Testament is objectionable um, and it's pretty offensive and difficult to swallow. So, verse 21, and, and again, following the direct commands of God, those direct commands of God that we read back in Deuteronomy uh, 7, chapter 7 and 20, if you want to go back and look at it. So, verse 21 says, They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's the prominent atheist, you might have heard of him. Um, he said this, the ethnic cleansing, in the God delusion, the ethnic cleansing began in the time of Moses, is brought about, uh, brought to blood, sorry, to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and xenophobic relish with which it does so. And yet, only six chapters of Joshua's 24 chapters actually contain stories of battles that Israel fought. And where it does, actually Joshua uses, well, the book of Joshua uses language far more restrained than Dawkins does. To focus simply on the battles is to miss the broader perspective of the book and its key themes, including um, the possibility of mercy for the outsider, the justice handed out to the unfaithful insider, the establishment and unity of a nation, the demands of loyalty to Israel's God, the faithfulness of God to his people and his promises. So what I think we, we need to acknowledge as we look at this, is that everyone, and Richard Dawkins included, atheists included, everyone comes to passages like these with what we might call control beliefs. It's basically our framework. We all come to a passage like this with some sort of framework. Uh, beliefs or perspectives we hold. And that influences our judgments. No one is neutral. Everyone comes to some thing, uh, reading, whatever it might be, with some judgment, some perspective, uh, some framework, these controlled beliefs. And so when we, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you believe in the Word of God here, 
uh, when we come to this topic of battles and bloodshed, which I've just given them that name, seems sort of appropriate really, uh, then we too come with control beliefs. We come with a framework of how we deal with a problem verse such as this, or a theme really such as this. Uh, and that framework, that control belief, well, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, that is the Word of God, that's the Scriptures, that's the Bible. That's our framework. And God's sovereignty, in other words, God being in control of all things, like a king over his control, God's sovereignty is central to a biblical view of God. And it's of great importance when we come to thinking about these things, these controversial verses like this. So let me, um, uh, let me therefore briefly mention five aspects of God's sovereignty which... I think need to shape our thinking when it comes to battles and bloodshed in Joshua and dealing with difficult passages like 6 verse 21. Now I've stolen these from um, Doug Johnson's book on Joshua. Uh, if you want to read a bit more um, then come and see me afterwards, I'll give you the details and you can get the book for yourself. It's worth reading, it, it's a commentary in that sense but it's, um, it's not too difficult. First thing, well... God's sovereignty in Revelation. So that is, God has absolute freedom to reveal what he wants to reveal of himself and his ways. We are reliant on him telling us what he thinks we need to know. The Bible tells us that. Our responsibility is to deal with and act on what he's revealed. So God has given us Joshua 6 verse 21. We have the responsibility to deal with it, think about it. And so we, we shouldn't just ignore it um, as either too difficult or too disturbing to talk about. And by the way, if, you have, if, you, if I haven't stated the obvious here, the disturbing part of 6 verse 21 is that children are killed. If, if you missed that, uh, that's what I'm talking about. I think everyone got that, but that's what's most disturbing about it. Okay, so we don't, we don't just shove it, you know, sweep it under the carpet. Um, we've also got to be careful not to devalue the Old Testament narrative by treating the New Testament and especially Jesus' command as a better way. We're just going to have this, this is the better way, we don't talk about the Old Testament, it's embarrassing. No, 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 we don't do that. Uh, that would be disobeying what Jesus says about the Old Testament. Now, finally too, we don't want to impose our own morality or even wisdom on it. This is God's Word. All Scripture is God-breathed, including this. We've got to read it in the context of the wider biblical story. Now, okay, that's the first one. Another aspect of God's sovereignty to shape our thinking, form our framework, if you like, these control beliefs. If you're a Christian who believe in the Bible, well, the Bible's clear on this, that God is sovereign in the physical world. And so that is, the Scriptures make clear, God is the absolute maker, owner and governor of every aspect of the physical world. So uh, Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. He, he, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. A reference to creation. Now, in the, in the light of this, the Old Testament regards the nations as residents. Um, residents in the allotted lands, tenants. That's what they are. The nations are tenants. They're not owners. They're not landlords. So God's sovereignty over the nations is our next uh, little thought. The movements and affairs of the nations are not the outworkings of blind historical forces. They're not that, nor are they the outworking of human will. 
both God's own pe- uh, people and the surrounding nations are under the sovereign control of God. So Amos 9 verse 7, here's God speaking again uh, through the prophet Amos. Are you not Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Another neighbouring country, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up out of Egypt, the Philistines out of Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr? God is sovereign over the nations. He's in control of it all. So following on from this then, following from his rule over the nations, the second last one, uh, God is sovereign over history. So the nation's rulers are viewed by the Old Testament as instruments of God's purposes. And we see that a number of times. So Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Finally, God's sovereignty in the moral world. Uh, I don't know, whether King Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel 4 was sincere or not, his statement is certainly true. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So here's truths of scripture. Uh, we, we have to deal with them. But if you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you take seriously the Lord Jesus, then here's your framework of how we deal with um, these, or one of your frameworks, I should say, of how we deal with these questions. See, there is no judge above God the judge, and anything different is, a, is an attempt to dethrone God. Okay, so with all that in mind, let, let me make a few comments about what I've been calling battles and bloodshed of Joshua. First, it would be wrong to assume that the conquest of Canaan is a model for the way all generations of Israel should act. It's wrong to assume that. This, this war was designed to achieve a very particular set of purposes in the history of Israel and the flow of, of biblical history. God is not on a warpath. Uh, and this story is not typical. Joshua describes a key historical event and it finished. It didn't keep going, it finished. It was a war like no other because of its place in the history of salvation. So, why the unprecedented level of destruction in this war? Why, as um, theologians call it, the ban, B-A-N? That is, the giving over, the devoting to God of all things, all persons, whatever, uh, and often by totally destroying them. That, that was what theologians call the ban, um, this just total destruction, basically. Why that? Why that level? Well, I reckon there's two answers, and... Um, I think there's probably, there might be more, but for the moment, two answers. One answer the Old Testament gives is that it is the means God uses to execute uh, judgment. Judgment on the people of the land. And it comes at the end of a few centuries of God's patience and an ever-increasing tally of sinful acts. Some of the evils history records, not just biblically, but um, history records uh, with the Canaanites, how they, what they took part in and which resulted in the um, defilement of the land were things like adult, um, idolatry, child sacrifice, adultery and sex with animals. Surrounded by a culture of this kind, the habits and actions of one generation would easily be passed on to the next and so total destruction 
was therefore necessary. So the conquest was not only the, it's really a temporary judgment of an evil nation. I say temporary because one day God will judge at the end of all things. When Jesus returns, God will be the judge. Um, But it was also a disinfecting of the land. It was to prevent, let's just use this analogy, the contagion of Canaanite sin spreading into the people of God. And so the next chapter, if you're reading along in chapter 7 concerning Achan, that just shows how necessary that is. But even in, if you've got your Bibles there in Joshua 6 verse 18, the warning was, but keep away from the devoted things. Now the devoted things were attached to the, the pagan worship. Okay, Keep away from the devoted things, they're told, so that you won't bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Now skipping ahead, if we wanted to, that was the problem in the next chapter. They didn't do that. They didn't keep away from the devoted things and it all fell apart. Uh, otherwise, you'd be make, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So in the end, the fall of Jericho and the ban, which is effectively, effectively God's judgment, it was placed under, uh, the, the ban was placed under, it reminds us that really there, there are only two places to stand in this world. That's what it comes down to, really. Two places to stand, two ways to live, if you like. So you can be in the Canaanite camp, or you can be the Israelite camp. They're the two ways to live. They both represent, balling it down, those who are rebels against God, the God who is sovereign over all things, the God that one day every knee will bow before. Like it or not, that's what will happen. So you can be either in that camp there, uh, a rebel against God. And you can, that, that can work itself out in lots of ways. You can be like the Canaanites, child sacrifice, sleeping with uh, sex with animals, all that sort of horrible things. You could, or you could just totally ignore God and not even listen to him. Actively, passively, you can be in that camp. Or you can be in this camp here in a relationship with God. And there's only one way to move from that camp to this camp. There's only one way. And that is, well, it, it's, there's only one bridge, if you like, to move from one camp to the other. And that bridge of course, is Jesus, the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the bridge. We move from that camp here to that camp here. And by faith in Jesus, we, like Rahab, can move from the Canaanite camp to the Israelite camp, from being a rebel to being a friend with God. Now, friends, at this point um, on your outline, I think I've got a third point. Do I have the page? I do. It's very small. That's because there's nothing in it. That's why it's small. Um, I thought I'd talk about for a moment exploring how God's promises to Rahab were delivered, but I'm not going to do that because I've run out of time. Um, you can do that at home. You can read about it. Um, and also the, the curse and rebuilding of the city. Uh, you can read about that too, and you can think about that at home. I want to close, though, with asking the question, where does this leave us as 21st century Christian believers? If you've, you're a Christian today, if you've gone from that camp to that camp, you've trusted in, the, uh, in Jesus, who's dealt with our sin, then what, what is it? Because this is, Joshua's God is our God too. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, let's be clear first up, as I said earlier, that, that we are not to apply the principles of the ban, uh, the giving over of things or persons to the Lord by totally destroying them, to, to our very different time in history. Yes, evil is still rampant in our world and perhaps the mark of how much we are truly God's people is actually how, we, how deeply we share 
God's hatred of sin in our own hearts and then um, how determined we are to turn away from that sin. That's the place to start before we pass judgment on others. Wherever we see evil, we are to oppose it vigorously and purposefully, but we are to use the weapons of God, the ones he's given us, the ones he's provided for this spiritual warfare that if you're a Christian, you're in. Now, the New Testament gives us several ways uh, which help us apply Joshua 6 rightly. Let me finish by sharing a few. Here's the first one, 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, you see, this warfare is for the hearts and minds of people uh, to free them from the chains of this world and the devil working. The devil wants to do anything he can to stop us from thinking and trusting in Jesus. And we do it, see that? by well we do it by preaching we do it by proclamation that means we do it by sharing the gospel that's what we do it by uh, and ap applying the gospel in our lives how about ephesians 6 verse 12 and 13 for our struggle this is paul again is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms therefore what is God say, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. To stand firm in your faith in the Lord Jesus. See, far from Christians engaging in some form of holy war against other human beings, we are to concentrate on the ground that Jesus has already won for us in his great saving work and to fight the spiritual battle against the onslaughts of the devil in the heavenly realms. That's that spiritual warfare that, we're, that actually Dennis mentioned right at the start. That's why, you see, if we kept on reading Ephesians, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, they are our weapons, our vital weapons in this spiritual battle. It's not jihad, but Jesus who wins the victory for the people of God, who says to his kingdom citizens, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so, in a moment we're going to sing this song. O church, arise, put your armour on, hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Amen to that, yes? I hope so, amen. Um, I'm going to pray for us now and then we'll, get, we'll have a bit of time to ask a question or two. Again, I can't promise I know all the answers, um, but um, I might be able to come back next week and give you one. But I'll pray and then we'll see how we, we'll see how we go. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for your word to us today. Uh, it, is, it is difficult. Um, it's difficult to hear of uh, terrible things that happened. It's difficult to understand sometimes um, your judgment on the people of this earth.
But Lord, we, we trust you and Lord, you are sovereign over all. Um, and Lord, I thank you that you've given us an opportunity. You've given us mercy. You have loved us. And so that we can go from, well, the camp of rebels against you to the camp of those who trust in you. And all because, Jesus, you died for us. Lord, thank you for that. Um, we thank you and we pray that we can show the faith of Rahab in our lives and put that um, faith into action. In Jesus' name, amen.